Church, church, get ready. We are in for uh, a treat this morning as we get into the Word of God. It is my privilege to uh, introduce to you our speaker for today. And for a lot of you, uh, he needs no introduction. He has been a spiritual father, um, a pastor, a leader, even a mentor for many of you. Um, he has been that and so much more to us as a church family. Um, but I realize there are some of you who... You might be newer, newer to the church. Maybe you're watching online for the first time and uh, you've been here maybe in the past few months, maybe past six, seven months, and maybe you haven't been able to meet him personally yet. I really pray that you do. Please do make, a, uh, make it a point to introduce yourself and get to know our pastor, Pastor Gary Shiohama. He is the one. Yeah. You need to know this, that he is the one who started this church over 30 years ago, back in 1992. Um, and it, it just amazes me every time I think about the fact that it took one man's yes for us to experience this. That thousands of people get to be impacted by the family of God, the, the teaching of God's word, and the, the, the gospel in our lives and beyond our church. And so one man's yes um, allowed us to be a part of this. And so he is the one, because of the culture he's helped create, the foundation he's laid, the, the word of God he's brought forth, and the leadership that he's brought that, uh, that we, we get to know God in the ways we have come to know him. So, church, would you, would you stand up? Let's give the warmest, most honoring welcome to our pastor, Pastor Gary. <laughs> Thanks, Greg. Thank you. Thank you, Sanal. Thank you. Wow, thank you so much for that. Wow, so Mark, why are you over there and not over here? That's because Regina and Paul are over here. Well, hey, it's so good to be back with all of you. Um, thank you so much, and a, and a shout out not only to all of you here, but those of you in the Faith Center, in the well, and of course, all of you who are watching online. You know, some of you, as Pastor Greg mentioned, have no idea who I am, and you're probably wondering who's that old fossil up there. And as he mentioned, I, I, used to be the, I used to be the senior pastor here um, because, and you've shown up in just the last probably seven months or so. Um, but I want to just begin by thanking all of you from the bottom of my heart uh, on behalf of my family. Thank you for your kindness and your generosity. Uh, you showered on, on me upon my retirement. Uh, your love offering, your, your notes, your cards, your emails, um, and all sorts of other assortment, assorted Star Wars gifts um, were truly uh, overwhelming. And um, many of you have asked me how I like entire retirement, and I'm really beginning to enjoy it. I, to be honest with you, the first uh, couple of months were pretty tough and really difficult uh, adjusting to not being at church every single weekend after I had done that for over 30 years. But uh, now that I'm settled in, I'm enjoying it immensely and partly because some of my time has been taken up um, with a new addition to our family. And uh, yeah, believe it or not, despite my age, the adoption agency approved our application. I know, right? I mean, it's like, I'm old. And about six weeks ago, we brought a little girl into our family, and she's about 15 weeks old now, and this is her. We named her Kea, 
Shiohama, kea is a Hawaiian word for cross, I believe. I wanted to name her Shohei, but my, my wife and daughters wouldn't go for it. And she is an active little girl, and she keeps us very, very busy. But in addition to that, my pace is, has, has begun to pick up this year. Uh, you've just been resting for, you know, clean the garage, all those kind of things. But now this year, the pace is beginning to pick up, and I will be uh, uh, ministering with Pastor Corey at a, at a church in Orange County uh, in February and March. They, um, they're, you know, just without a pastor at the moment. And um, I've begun working on that journal through the book of Psalms that I promised you a long, long time ago. I'll get it to you somehow, somehow sometime. And then I also want to put together a training program for up-and-coming pastors. And then I'm exploring some leadership training opportunities in Japan and perhaps elsewhere. So, you know, more than anything else, I, I love teaching God's Word. I enjoy that, and it is just a joy for me to be able to do that uh, t today. And uh, as you know, we're in a series uh, going through the Gospel of Mark, and I can't think of a better way to begin the new year than by getting into God's Word. And uh, so uh, get out your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 3, and open up your South Bay Community Church app. And I want to pray first, and, and I just want to say this, a couple things. One, finding a successor uh, is one of the most daunting challenges that a church faces. In fact, I know of at least a half a dozen churches today, and some of them have been looking for successors because their senior pastor um, retired or is planning to retire. Some said, hey, we can't find one. I'm still retiring. And I know churches that have gone on for years without a pastor. And we're so blessed that, that the Lord gave us Pastor Greg. We really are. And so, and, and I'm so, it just thrills me to see that our church is growing and we're reaching more people and we're now in the well and, the, and all these kind of things. And so, you know, unless you've walked in the senior pastor's footsteps, you, you can't even imagine what it's like. And so I want to encourage you to continually keep them in your prayers, all right, because it is a very difficult job. It's not just a matter of coming up here and preaching every couple weeks, but there's so many more things, so many moving parts to leading a church, and I, and I want to encourage you to pray for him. And uh, I want to ask you to pray for Pastor Igor and Lena. They're, they're in town, and I had an opportunity to, to meet with them recently, and they, they told me that you might know them. They, he's a pastor and a seminary president in Ukraine, and he said things have gotten pretty bad recently, he said, because the Russians are now firing these hypersonic missiles into Kiev, and he said one hit... Um, they're close to their house, about, about a half mile away. And he says they're so fast that they don't even, sometimes they don't even get a three-minute warning to run in the bomb shelter. So continue to pray for their protection. And then I also want to pray for six young men who are part of our church. Their families are part of their, our church. And I'm just going to give you their names, their first names. But all six of these men, young men, serve in the military, serve in the armed forces, protecting our country. And a number of them are, are in harm's way today. Jacob is serving, he's a pilot, and he's serving on the USS Eisenhower in the Red Sea. And you can only imagine what he is see, uh, witnessing every single day. JD is serving on the USS Ronald Reagan, uh, and I believe they're in the Sea of China. Davis is uh, a pilot waiting to be deployed. Keanu and Chris are also training to be pilots. Patrick is already serving in the Air Force. And so these are just six men, and, I, and I'm sure there are more. And, and if you've got a son or a daughter who's in the military, let, let the staff know so we can keep them in your prayers. And I want to encourage you 
to always keep them in your prayers. Okay, so let's begin our time in word of prayer. Then we'll open up God's word. Well, Father, what a, what a thrill it is for me to be back here and to share your word with, with your church, with your people. Father, thank you so much for, for this church and all that you've done for, for Pastor Greg and his leadership. Thank you so much for giving us someone to lead our church, uh, for, for me to have a successor like him. And I ask God for your blessings upon him and I pray that you would help him to run this race and I pray that you would carry his burdens and Father, as I think of pastors, I think of Pastor Igor and Lena as they're doing a tremendous work in Kiev, Ukraine. And Father, we ask for your continued faithfulness and protection over them. They have endured so much. Every single day they're, they're hearing bombs go off and missiles fly through the air and drones that are launching these attacks on their city. And we ask God that the word of God would go forth through their ministry. And Father, thank you for these six young men, Jacob and J.D., Davis, Keanu, Chris, and Patrick, all of whom who are, if not already, um, in the theater of war, training to do so. God, we thank you for their dedication, their devotion, and their, their commitment to serving our country and to protecting us. And we ask that you would protect them. We ask that you would shine your face on them, that you would always keep them in your care that they would sense your presence, your loving kindness toward them, even when they're in the most dire of situations. So Father, thank you so much for our time together today. What a, again, what a joy it is. And, and I pray, Holy Spirit, will you speak to us today? I, I pray that it wouldn't be me because it's, if it's me, it's nothing's, gonna, nothing's gonna happen. There won't be any transformation. There won't be any conviction. But Holy Spirit, if it's you, there's no limit to what you can do. So we invite you to, to touch us now, speak to us through your word, and I ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, many years ago, the, the author and the great Christian apologist C.S. Lewis presented what, meant, what many said was the most important argument in Christian apologetics, and it was this, that Jesus was either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. And I don't know if you remember that, you might have heard this slogan, he was the one that came up with it, that Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. You might remember Lewis. He, he uh, wrote several books, Mere Christianity, The Screwtape Letters. And he argued that, he, that Jesus was either lying through his teeth about who he was, or he was a crazy off his rocker, or he was, in fact, who he said he was. And Lewis is, Lewis's argument is referred to as the trilemma or a trilemma. And many believe that he formulated this trilemma from the passage that we're going to look at today, Mark 3, 7 through 35. Now, I'm going to, not going to be able to cover all of it, but that's where they believe this came from. Now, in this age of diversity, equity, and inclusion, it has become fashionable for people to self-identify. Everyone is getting into the act. According to the Cambridge Dictionary, to self-identify is to believe that, quote, you are a particular kind of person, especially when other people do not think that you are that kind of person, unquote. That's what it means to self-identify. In other words, you are who you say you are, not who others say you are. You are who you are, not who others say you are. And you can say who you are based on how you feel and regardless of the truth. And as I said, everyone seems to be getting in the act today. I heard about a grown man 
who put an ad on Craigslist for nannies, looking for a nanny because he's self-identified as a baby. I'm not making that up. Uh, you've heard of transgender and transracial. Now there is transabled. When you self-identify as someone with a disability. And so I heard about a man in the UK who self-identified as an amputee. So you know what he did? He went out and cut off his arm. I kid you not. I heard about another woman in North Carolina who, who self-identified as someone who was blind, a blind person. So she poured drain cleaner into her eyes so that she would become blind. Here's the thing. You can self-identify any way you want, and people do. Believe it or not, Jesus self-identified. He self-identified as the Son of God. He said that he was the Son of God. Consider these self-identifying statements that he made come from Scripture. And uh, I hope you have a pad of paper and can take notes, all right? And I'm going to run through these quickly. But in a dialogue that he was having with a group of religious leaders in John chapter 8, he ended the conversation by saying this. I'll put it up here for you. He said, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. Now, at first glance, you've got to admit that this seemed like an awfully strange thing for him to say. Who are you? I am. What? I mean, like, who says that? What's your name? I am. I just, it's, it's crazy. Yeah, but what's amazing is that uh, concerning Jesus' self-identification, what's amazing is that the Jews knew exactly what he was saying. They knew exactly what he was talking about. Because Jesus, when he said, I am, he had in mind what God said when Moses asked him his name. When Moses asked God his name, here's how God answered in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So in answer to the question, who are you, God? He, God replied to Moses, I am. I am who I am. Now, let me explain something here real quick, right? So the, most of the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. There's parts of it in Aramaic, but primarily Hebrew. And the New Testament was written in Greek. Right? And what we have, our Bibles are an English translation of the Hebrew and the Greek. And sometimes the English doesn't do justice to what the original language was all about. And so it's, it's helpful to go back and look at, pull out a Hebrew dictionary and a Greek dictionary and take a look at, look at some of the words and see what they actually mean. And I'm going to do that throughout this message. The Hebrew word for I am means to be or to exist. Again, that's not how, it's, how we read it here. But in the Hebrew, it means to be or to exist, and it refers to God's self-existence. In other words, God is. He exists. He is, he is, he has always been, and he will always be. And thus, when Jesus said, I am, the Jews knew exactly what he was getting at. He was saying, I am God. I've always been. I will always be. I am God. And again, the Jews got it. And this was, nothing, this was nothing less than an unequivocal declaration of his deity, and it infuriated the Jews. It made them nuts because to say that you are God was to blaspheme God, and it was punishable by death, according to the Old Testament. In another, 
extraordinary exchange Jesus had with another group of religious Jews at the end of his life. Mark 14, 61 and 62 says this, but Jesus remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with clouds, with the clouds of heaven. Here's another instance where Jesus, the man, self-identified as God in human flesh. When he was asked, are you the son of the blessed? He said, I am. And he even mentioned his second coming that will occur one day. Let me show you one other statement. In this one, the Gospel of John, Jesus, Jesus expresses absolute equality with God when he said this, John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. We are one. I and the Father in our attributes, in our nature, we are one. By saying this, Jesus self-identified as God. Now, what we have to figure out is, was he lying or was he telling the truth? Last week, I had to testify in court uh, on a small claims action that I brought against a large company. Now, I'm not going to bore you with the details, but before, when it was my turn, when my case came up, I was called to the front. And before I began my testimony, I was asked to raise my right hand to swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And so I did, because I didn't want to perjure myself. So I told the truth. And the judge ruled in my favor. He ruled in my favor, and after my victory, I thought, wow, I had to be a lawyer. That's pretty good, right? I won my first case, so I'm going to go to law school now. No, I'm kidding. Too old for that, right? Seriously, um, I came away from this experience um, with the highest regard for judges who have a tough job because so often they have to determine whether somebody is telling the truth or whether they're telling a lie. Right? And so how do you do that? How do you tell whether somebody's telling the truth or whether they're telling a lie? Well, first, you look for corroborating evidence. You look for evidence. You, you consider the evidence. And second, you consider the testimony of eyewitnesses. Those two things will help you to determine whether someone is telling the truth or whether they're telling a lie. Now, I didn't have any witnesses, but I had evidence. So I presented the evidence to the court. Right? Jesus had both evidence and witnesses. Right? First... Jesus' evidence was his miracles. His miracles was his evidence. In Acts chapter 2, the apostle Peter declared, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. The Greek word for attested means to prove. In other words, his mighty works and his wonders and his signs proved that he was God. It was evidence that he was God. Take a look at Mark chapter 3. This is the chapter we're supposed to be on today, starting in verse 7. Take a look at what happened. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. It's the Sea of Galilee. And a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And when he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him, for he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. So according to this passage, Jesus performed miracle after miracle after miracle, healing, cleansing, restoring, making people whole. And everybody, everybody wanted a piece of him. Everybody wanted to get close to him. Notice in verse 7 and 8, 
I mean, his fan base kept increasing. He was followed by large crowds, hordes of people, just wanting to touch his cloak. And the implication of verse 9 is that there were so many people around him that he was in danger of being crushed by the mass of humanity. I imagine it must be like that for Shohei Otani, right? Suddenly, everyone's a fan. Everybody wants to get close to him. Everybody wants to shake his hand and get his autograph. The other day, this is true, every, the other day, one of my friends in Japan uh, emailed me asking me how his daughter can meet Shohei. He said, We're gonna make a, we want to make a special trip out to America, and we want to meet Shohei. I want you to tell me how, I, how we, my daughter can meet Shohei. And I don't know why he asked me. Maybe he thought that I was buddies with Shohei. I mean, maybe he heard that, I, you know, just because I had my picture taken with him, maybe he thinks I'm his buddy. Here's the picture. <laughs> Me and 25 other people. But you can't say you have a picture with him, right? Hey, but the good thing, the good thing that came out of all those people being with Jesus was that they became eyewitnesses to what he did. They came eyewitnesses to his miracles. And they began to testify about what he did and who he was, like they would in a court of law. John the Baptist, for example, said in John 1:34, and I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. I've seen it with my own eyes. He is the Son of God. After the disciples saw Jesus calm the raging Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, Matthew 14, verse 33 says, and those in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly, truly, you are the son of God. When Jesus told Martha that he was the resurrection and the life, just right before he raised her brother from the dead, Lazarus from the dead, Martha said in John eleven twenty seven, 27, she said to him, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. And when Jesus took his final breath on the cross, you remember what happened? When he took his final breath, it was a massive earthquake. And, and check the reaction of the Roman centurion who, who stood guard, Matthew 27, 54. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. And of course, the greatest evidence of all that Jesus was God was his resurrection, which was witnessed by hundreds of people. Or actually, his, yeah, his resurrection was witnessed by hundreds of people. Romans 1.4 says, and, and Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. His resurrection was the most convincing piece of evidence of all that he was God. And here's the thing. People weren't the only ones who believed that Jesus was the Son of God. So did those who belonged to the spirit world. It wasn't just people, but those in the spirit world believed that he was the Son of God. For example, in Luke 135, an angel, an angel appears. And it says in 130, Luke 135, and the angel answered Mary and said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, Mary, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. See, even the angels knew that Jesus was the Son of God. Of course they did, because they were with him in eternity past, in heaven. They were there with him before he came to planet Earth. And not only did, did angels acknowledge 
that he was a son of God. So did demons. Mark 11, uh, Mark, Mark 3, verse 11. Take a look at it. It says, and whenever the unclean spirits, the unclean spirits are referenced to demons. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. Even the demons knew that he was the son of God. People and angels and demons. And uh, the demons acknowledged Christ is the Son of God as well because they were with him in heaven at one point when they were still angels before a third of them were cast out of heaven and they became demons. So you have all this evidence and you have all these witness, witnesses and, and there's, by the way, there's so much more, there's so much more evidence than what, what I just presented you. I just presented you a scant number. There's so many witnesses, so, many, so much evidence. Collectively, you put it all together and they point to the fact that Jesus wasn't lying. He was telling the truth. He was the son of God. You know, when we thought about adopting Kea, we never for a moment considered adopting this dog instead. Take a good look. And the reason why we didn't want to adopt this dog is because this is not a dog. This is a man. Right? There is a man inside that dog suit. Happens to be a Japanese man. And he, he, this Japanese man is so convinced that he is a dog, self-identifies as a dog, that he shelled out more than 15,000 U.S. dollars to have this custom-made dog suit created just for him. And so I did a little research on this subject about how many people self-identify as dogs. You know what I learned? I learned... According to a, a guy named Joe Strike, who wrote a book about all this, um, there are an estimated 250,000 people in our country who self-identify as dogs. That's a quarter of a million people who self-identify as dogs in our country, and Joe Strike gave them a name. He calls them furries. And he wrote that, he wrote that, get this, he wrote that two-thirds, he found that two-thirds of furries are men, naturally, right, of course. And he found, he also found that the greatest number of them come from the IT and technology professions. How many of you guys are in the technology or IT <laughs> professions? Will you raise your hand? No, don't, don't raise your hands. So what are we to make of this, right? What are we to make of these people who self-identify as dogs? Are they crazy? Are they lunatics? Well... Well, we don't use that word lunatics anymore. And it is, it is possible that they're suffering from some kind of mental illness, which is, which is a very serious issue today. People do suffer from that. But here, here's the crazy thing. A lot of people thought that Jesus was a lunatic for self-identifying as the son of God. In fact, you will never believe this. You will never believe who some of those people were who thought he was crazy. Take a look at Mark 3 again in verse 20. And then Jesus went home to Capernaum. That's where he lived. And the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. So many people there. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. He is out of his mind. Yeah, you read that right. I had to read it a couple times. Wait a minute. Is this right? Is this right? No. His, his family thought he was out of his uh, mind. And he looked at the Greek. And I looked at the Greek, and the Greek literally means he was beside himself. He was beside himself. The NASB translates this phrase, he has lost his senses. Wycliffe translates it, he turned into madness. 
The New Life Bible translate, translates it, he must be crazy. And furthermore, the phrase is written in the Greek, it is written in the imperfect tense, indicating that his family repeatedly said this. He's out of his mind. He's out, of, he's out of his mind. Yeshua is out of his mind. Can you imagine being around the dinner table and all you're talking about is, your, is Jesus? He's out of his mind. And, but, but imagine his own family saying this about him. And out of their desire to protect him, verse 21 says they went out to seize him. And the Greek word for seize, I had to look that up too, means to take custody. Another word that's used for this is arrest. They wanted to go out and arrest him, to take hold of him. Now, here's an important note. You just need to keep this in mind. His mother wasn't one of the members of the family who thought he was crazy. Mary believed in him. You know, she, she was told right from the get-go that he's the son of God. So she believed in him. It was his siblings who didn't believe in him. His half-brothers didn't believe in him. John 7, 5, just very quickly says, for not even his brothers believed in him. And it wasn't until later that they all came to, to believe in him and they became Christ followers but at this juncture in his ministry, they thought he was crazy. So was he? Well, I believe you can't dismiss it outright considering how many people have claimed to be God over the centuries. I mean, you, you can even run into people today who think they're God. Reminds me of the story that John MacArthur told about a man lying in a, in a bed at a mental hospital, and he kept saying, I am Napoleon, I am Napoleon, I am Napoleon. And the guy in the bed next to him says, who told you that? And the man says, God did. And the guy next to him said, I, no, I didn't. <laughs> so, so how can you tell? How do you tell if somebody who claims to be God is crazy? Well, according to Dr. Gary Collins, who is a clinical psychologist at Purdue University, he's written 45 books on psychology-related subjects. He said you have to look for other symptoms that often accompany mental illness. Collins was interviewed by Lee Strobel for his book, The Case for Christ, and he told Strobel that psychologists don't look at what a person says if somebody claims to be God. Don't just look at that. But you gotta look at possible, other possible symptoms. He said, because if, there, if there's a problem there, you'll, they'll exhibit other symptoms. For example, disturbed individuals frequently experience depression, schizophrenia, paranoia, psychosis, anger, anxiety. And upon examining the biblical record, Collins came to the conclusion that Jesus didn't suffer from any mental illness whatsoever because none of these other symptoms exist. There's nothing about it. Instead, he found the opposite. Here's what he wrote. He was loving. Jesus was loving, but he didn't let his compassion immobilize him. He didn't have a bloated ego, even though he was often surrounded by adoring crowds. He maintained balance despite an often demanding lifestyle. He always knew what he was doing, where he, where he was going. He cared deeply about people, including women and children, who weren't, who weren't seen as being important back then. He was able to accept people while not merely winking at their sin. He responded to individuals based on where they were at and what they uniquely needed. And Collins concluded, in an analogous way, Jesus didn't just claim to be God. He backed it up with amazing facts of healing with astounding demonstrations of power over nature, with transcendent and unprecedented teaching, with divine insights into people, and ultimately with his own resurrection from the dead, which absolutely nobody else has been able to duplicate. So when Jesus claimed to be God, it wasn't crazy. It was the truth. So I think you can eliminate lunatic 
from the list of possibilities as well. Well, that leaves us with only one other option, and that is, Lord, if Jesus wasn't a liar, if he wasn't off his rocker, then he had to be Lord. He had to be Lord. And what did this mean exactly? Well, the word for Lord in the Greek is kurios, and it means master. And it refers to someone who is an authority or has control and power over others. You could call your boss master because that kurios fits the definition. It's a title of respect and honor. And it was used, it was used to refer to Jesus throughout his ministry. And then something changed, drastically changed. After Jesus was raised from the dead, Kurios took on a whole new, different meaning. Turn to John chapter 20 and I'll show you. Now, according to this passage, on the evening of Jesus' resurrection, okay, so he, he's raised on a Sunday morning, right? That evening, 10 of his disciples gathered together in a room somewhere in Jerusalem, and Jesus showed up. Now, the reason why 12 of them didn't gather is because Judas was dead, the betrayer hung himself, and then Thomas, for whatever reason, missed the meeting. So there were only 10 of them there, 10 of the 12. They gathered together, and Jesus showed up, and the 10 were overwhelmed and overjoyed to see Jesus alive. And afterward, they told, they told Thomas what they missed. They said, oh, we saw the Lord, we saw the Lord, but, but Thomas didn't believe. He simply didn't believe. That's why he's referred to as Doubting Thomas. Take a look at John 20, verse 25. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his, into his side, I will never believe. No way. I got to see it from my own eyes. Well, eight days later, sure enough, eight days later, the, the disciples gathered together again. And this time Thomas was with them. There were 11 this time. And once again, Jesus showed up. He, he seemed to appear out of nowhere, just showed up. Now take a look at verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although, although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not believe, disbelieve. But believe. And Thomas answered, My Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. You ought to underline that one in your Bible. In this very simple but profound confession, Thomas gave us what I think is the best definition of what it means that Jesus is Lord. And it's this He is God. My Lord and my God. And it was from this point on after the resurrection, that whenever the phrase Jesus is Lord was uttered, it was a declaration of his deity. It was no longer just a respectful honorific. It was a declaration that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, the image that most of us have of Jesus that we're most familiar with, that we see throughout the Gospel of Mark, is that of a baby in a manger, a carpenter's son whose own family thought he was crazy, an itinerant preacher who was tempted by Satan in the desert, in the wilderness for 40 days, a rabbi who socialized with the dregs of society, the lowlifes, tax collectors, sinners, and prostitutes, a friend who wept when Lazarus, his friend Lazarus, died. What we're most familiar with is a teacher who rode into Jerusalem on a donkey and who endured 
the accusations that he was mad, that he was Beelzebul, the prince of demons, a shepherd who was spit on and beaten and punched and humiliated and then crucified like a criminal. That's the image that we have of Jesus from the Gospels. And what is conspicuously absent from these writings is any overt display of Jesus' glory, of his beauty, of his majesty, of his magnificence. We don't see it, yet it was there. The writer of Hebrews penned Hebrews 1.3. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is Lord. He is I am. We also don't see in the Gospels that Jesus was the creator of the universe. He created everything, seen and unseen. The Apostle Paul put it this way in Colossians 1.16. For by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And this verse implies, it implies that he has a power that we can't even begin to wrap our heads around. Creative powers. Miracle powers. Healing powers. Transforming powers. Supernatural powers. There isn't anything that he can't do. There isn't anything that's too hard for him. There isn't anything that's impossible for him. Furthermore, he knows all things. He sees all things. He hears all things. He is everywhere. Jesus is Lord. You know, two weeks ago, Cheryl and I were in Hawaii uh, to attend the wedding of Michael Moriyama and Jana Tokuhama. Pastor Dave and I had the privilege of co-officiating their ceremony in Kaneohe and uh, it was without a doubt the most beautiful wedding venue that uh, I ever laid eyes on. You can see it right here in the back. It looks like Jurassic Park, and it's amazing. And uh, I just want to say to you single people, if you're thinking of getting married, um, I want you to know that Pastor Dave and I are available to do your wedding. We, are, we, we come, we're, we're a package deal, uh, but, we only, but we only do destination weddings. Hawaii, Tahiti, Bali, Mali, uh, Fiji, any place that ends with the letter I. Let us know and we'll do your wedding. Well, two nights before the big day, Cheryl and I went to dinner at a restaurant in Kaimuki. We got there around 7.30 and uh, we drove around and there was no parking. So we, there was no parking and finally I drove down the street, across the street from the restaurant and found found a parking lot, and I'll show you a picture of it. This is what it looks like. This is the entrance into the parking lot. There's, there's buildings all around, and so I went in there, uh, pushed the button, pulled the ticket, the gate went up, and I went inside and parked the car. And I'll, take a, I'll, show you the, I'll show you what the lot looks like, okay? This is the lot, all right? Because this is kind of a fun story. But, so there's the restaurant, the Oscar restaurant there. Had to cross the street, and there's Right about here, you can see that's that little driveway there. That's where that parking lot was. All right, so we went in there, moved down a few spaces, and parked the car kind of at the end of that building right there. All right, and so we walked back and went to the restaurant and had a great shabu shabu dinner. And uh, we, we, we got there around 7 30. And the reason why I know that is because there was a little bit of a wait. And so the, uh, the guy at the, at the front desk, checked us in, and he wrote down, you're checking in here at 7.30, all right? So I remember that time etched in my head. And we got done around 9 o'clock. So 
When nine o'clock came, I, I pulled out you know, my credit card to pay for the bill, and I also pulled out my parking ticket. And I said, do you validate? And he said, oh, I'm so sorry, we don't validate. I said, okay, then we'll figure it out. And so, so we went back. So after dinner, I said, well, I can't. I remember sitting there at the table thinking, okay, now don't lose your parking ticket, Gary, because you're going to need that to get out, right? And so I put the parking ticket. I thought I put it in my wallet or my pocket. And, I, and we walked back. We walked back to the car. Again, we went through that drive, came across the street, went through that driveway and parked the car. Right, was right about there. We got in. And as I'm walking to the car, I'm thinking, hey, I, where's my parking ticket? I, I can't find my parking. Took out my wallet, went through the, you know, rifle through the $1 bills that I had in there and <laughs> couldn't find the parking ticket. And I said, Cheryl, I think I, I must have left the parking ticket um, at the restaurant. So she said, okay, then I'll wait in the car. So she got in the car, and I went back to the restaurant. And I said, hi, you know, I, I was just here. Yeah, yeah, I remember you. And she said, yeah. I said, I think I left my parking ticket. He said, oh, yeah, I remember you pulled it out. I go, I said, did you see it when you cleared the table? Because the table was already cleared. And he said, no, no, I didn't see it at all. And so he said, let me check. So he went back. He actually rifled through the trash, and he, and he couldn't find the parking. He said, I'm, I'm so sorry. You know, I, I can't find the parking ticket. I said, okay, I, you know, what, what are you going to do? I said, I, I don't know what I'm going to do. I said, I mean, how do I get out of here? He says, yeah, I, I don't know. I, you know I'm, I was kind of hoping that he'd say, well, let me pull my car up to the gate and it'll open up. And it, because I, I, when, I, when I got there, I actually, I actually pushed the button. I actually pushed the button, but it, you know, there's a sensor there and it, tell, it only opens or gives you a ticket when it senses a car is there. You know, you, any, nobody can just go up there and just pull, get a ticket. And so I, I went back and um, I said to Cheryl, I said, you know, they don't have the ticket. I said, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know what we're going to do. And so she said, well, she said, you know, there's next door, there was a little boba place. So we went there we, before dinner while we were waiting. We got a boba. And, and so we, it was in a cup. And so I took that in the restaurant with us. And so I remember after I finished with it, I was stuffing my, my um, napkins in there and all that. And she said, I bet you put it in that cup. Oh, okay. So, so she said, I'll go with you. So she came back with me to the restaurant. We went back to the restaurant. I said, you know, remember that little cup I had there? Do you have that cup? It might be in the cup. So they went, they went in the trash, found the cup. I opened it up, and it wasn't in there either, right? So, so we, we walked outside, and we're looking around and just see if it was on the floor. Maybe I dropped it. And then as I'm walking back to the car, I'm just thinking, God, we're in a, we're in a jam here. We're going to be in this parking lot all night, you know? And there was a phone number there, and I called the number. And no one answered. And they said, our office hours are from 9 to 5. And, you know, this was already nine, almost 9.20. And I said, so, you know, I mean, I left a message, but nobody called me. And so I just prayed. I said, God, we're, I don't know how we're going to get out of here. You, you're going to have to get us out of here. Right? And so we went back to the car. And I, I just sat in the car. And I just prayed. And I just thought, how are we going to get out of here? And so I finally said, well, let's just drive around. Right? Huge parking lot, as you can see, right? So we drove around, and we came over here, and we thought, oh, there's a driveway there. We thought, maybe there's no kiosk there. Well, there sure was, so we couldn't get out there. And, and then there was one down over here, and we couldn't get out there. And, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't about to try to follow a car out, right? There were people leaving, um, and I was thinking, I can just follow that car out. And as soon as that arm goes up, just go as fast as I can. You know, my luck, it'll, that gate will come right down on my car, and then I have to pay the rental company all kinds of money. So I said, I'm not going to do that. I'm not trying to cheat the system. What am I going to do? And so I just drove around this place, 
And we just drove around, and she's like, what are you doing? I said, I'm just, I don't know. I'm just trying to drive around. I'm, I'm, I'm looking for God to do something. He's, he's got to get us out of here, right? And so finally, I said, well, here, there's a little restaurant right over here in the corner. And it, was, it looked like it was open. I think it's called the Oahu Girl. So I parked it over there by the shrubs. I, I said, you know, I'm going to go in there and ask them who the uh, local law enforcement is. Is it the... Is it the Hawaii police? Is it the, you know, Kaimuki sheriff? And Kaimuki sheriff. And I said, I'll, I'll call them and then I'll ask them if they can come and get me out of here. So I got out of the car and I walked uh, toward the restaurant. And just when I got toward the restaurant, so the restaurant's right there. I get there and as I'm walking, I see a little piece of paper on the floor, face up like this. And I thought, that's a ticket. That's a parking ticket. So I reached down and I got it and I go, oh my goodness, this is a parking ticket. Not only that, it was dated for that same date and the timestamp on it was 7.26 p.m., right? We checked in at 7.30, 7.26 p.m. And I went back to the car. I said, you'll never believe it. I said, I found the parking ticket. Right now, either some Joe found a you know checked in at 7:26 and lost a ticket, or this was my ticket. If this was 7:15, or if this was any time after 7:30, it wouldn't have been my ticket, right? But it was 7:26. Now again, I don't know if it was my ticket or not, but I, I I went to the kiosk, scanned that little thing, and paid three bucks, and we went home. And I was just absolutely to this day, it's like. Was that, all I know is it was a miracle. That's all. I mean, it's just a miracle. And you know, this whole incident reminded me, it reminded me that the Lord Jesus is attentive to all of our needs. He is attentive to all the things that are going on in our lives, no matter how mundane or how small, even how small they may be. And he, he even hears our prayers. Well, how much more is the Lord Jesus attentive to the big ticket items in our lives? When... You're battling a major health issue. When you're struggling in your marriage. When you're wrestling with infertility or loneliness or depression. When you're hard-pressed to find a job. When you're battling an addiction, a sexual addiction, a drug addiction, a gambling addiction, an alcohol addiction. When you're wrapped, when you're trapped in an unpleasant work environment. When you're besieged by debt and stress, and anxiety, and anger, and insecurities, whatever, whatever you're facing, the Lord cares, is attentive to you, and cares about you, and he actually hears your prayers. Now, I have to be honest with you. Sometimes, after you pray, you won't find that proverbial lost parking ticket. You might be stuck in that parking lot all night, but the Lord is still attentive. You're, you, after you pray, your, your life may not, may not turn out the way you'd hoped for. Your parents might end up getting a divorce. You might not get into that school you dreamed of. You, not, you may not get that job you wanted. Or you might finally get pregnant, and then you'll have a miscarriage. That biopsy might turn out positive. The bank might foreclose on your home. You may never get married and have children. That chemotherapy treatment may not work. 
and your loved one might die. But Jesus is still Lord. Amen? Amen. He is still Lord. You know, more than anything else, I am so thankful that the Lord Jesus came to planet Earth to die on a cross for my sins. Because there he was in eternity past in all of his glory with all those angels. And he chose the most counterintuitive path imaginable. He chose the path of most resistance. He came down from heaven in the form of a man to be crucified on a cross for our sins. See, he didn't have to do that, but he did. Paul describes it this way in Philippians. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He gave it all up. He gave it all up. Why? Because of love. Simply because he loved us. Simply because he loves you. The Lord knew. You see, the Lord knew that the one and only impediment to having fellowship with him going to heaven was sin. That would be the one obstacle. Dirty, dark, destructive, deceptive, devastating sin. That's enough to keep us out of heaven and keep us from having fellowship with the Lord. And the Bible says there are consequences for sin. That's the law of reaping what you sow. And get this, God didn't want us to reap what we had sown because he knew that if we reaped what we sowed, it would be devastating. So he sent his one and only son, Jesus, to reap what we had sown. That's our Lord. He came to take the punishment for our sins. He came to pay the penalty for your sins. You know, if you have yet to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord, here's something you need to know. The Bible says that one day you will. One day you will acknowledge that he is Lord. Because one day everyone, believer and unbeliever alike, will have to give an account of themselves to God. And when that day comes, and it will come, and sometimes the way things are looking in our world, I think it's going to come soon, right? But here's, here's what's going to happen according to Paul. Philippians 2, 9, and, 9 through 11. Therefore God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. See that? At the name of Jesus, every knee, every knee, Greek word for every is every, every knee is going to bow, every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord. And notice what it says at the end of verse 10. Every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. You know what this means? It means that everyone who is alive and everyone who has died and everyone who is in heaven and everyone who is in hell one day, every one of those knees will bow and every one of those tongues will confess and will acknowledge that Jesus is the Lord. That means the atheist, the agnostic, the Hindu, the Buddhist, the Muslim, the Satanist, the declined estate, everyone will bow the knee and confess that Jesus is Lord. 
Final word. Don't wait until you're standing before the Lord to acknowledge that he is Lord, right? Because then it'll be too late. Do it today. Do it now. If you're watching online, do it right there at your desk or in your living room. Do it there in the well or in the faith center. Acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. Romans 10, 9, last verse. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be saved from your sins. You will be forgiven of your sins. And one day when your heart beats for the last time, you will enter into eternity and live with him forever and ever in heaven. So, was Jesus a liar, a lunatic, or Lord? Lord. I hope you'll choose Lord. Amen. Let's close our time in a word of prayer. As you bow your heads and close your eyes for just a moment, again, I want to ask you, have you acknowledged that Jesus is Lord? If you haven't, I want to give you an opportunity to do that. If you haven't in a long time, I want to give you an opportunity to do that. We ought to declare every single day, Jesus, you are Lord. Jesus, there is no one like you. But especially for those of you who've never done it for the very first time, I want to invite you to declare, to confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and God raised him from the dead, and you will be saved. Just say this to him. Jesus, I declare that you are Lord. I confess that you are Lord. You are the Son of God. You are not a liar. You're not a lunatic. You are the one true God. You are the Son of God who came because of love to reap what I had sown. So I acknowledge you today and I receive you into my life. Help me now to follow you and live for you and for all the rest of us. If you haven't said, Jesus, you are Lord in a long, long time, maybe you've kind of strayed away, tell him today, Jesus, forgive me. You are Lord. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Help me to live for you every day. Will you say that to him? Father, thank you for your son. Thank you that he is Lord. He's not a liar. He's not a fraud. He's not a fake. He is the one true God. And we are just in awe of you that you would allow us to know him. And Lord, for so many of us, we, go, we get so busy in what we're doing. We get so wrapped up in family and work and school that we forget to just take a moment to acknowledge you as Lord. Lord, help us to do that not just right now, but every day, every moment, you are Lord. Thank you for being attentive to us. Thank you for being attentive to our great needs and for all those, God, who are suffering right now. Lord Jesus, make yourself known to them. Give them your touch. So thank you, Father. We love you. We, we uh, bless you. And we pray all these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.